Uh, Eugene Peterson said that hope is imagination put in the harness of faith. Imagination put in the harness of faith. Um, I, I think trusting God's promises, knowing His promises, and believing His promises, that's just faith. We just believe it. But to imagine those promises kept, to envision those promises fulfilled, and then being able to draw that image into your life today, that's hope. I think that's the difference. We trust His promises, we know them, that's faith. But when we imagine them being fulfilled, when you think about the full restoration when Christ returns, when you think about the vindication and glorification of the believer and renewal of the world, and that vision, that image matters to you now and actually affects how you live now, that's hope. And that's really what we've been talking about this whole Advent season, and this is the fourth Advent Sunday. But we'll continue this theme tonight at, at the Christmas Eve service and then the following Sunday as we are kind of stay in the Christmas time for a couple of weeks. We're really talking about this, this idea of hope and how do, we, how do we even define it? How do I mean, I just tried, but how do we grasp it? How do we apply it? And I think we do that through looking at these images in Scripture that the Lord gives us, these vivid metaphors of hope. And there are plenty of them in Scripture. We've picked four for Advent, and we have a couple more for Christmas. But the four we've picked so far, we've been focusing on each Sunday. The first one was a door that is open. God opens a door in the valley of trouble. So kind of hope in the midst of hopelessness. We talked about that. Then we talked about being prisoners of hope, being constrained by hope, or maybe better, better said, safe and protected by hope. And then last week, we, we talked about the anchor of hope, uh, the anchor that is, that is fixed to the throne of God in heaven by Christ that keeps us stable in the storms of this life. Well, today we have another great image from 1 Thessalonians 5, and this image is the image of helmet. It's a helmet of the hope of salvation. So let me read our passage from 1 Thessalonians, which is written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in a particular area, and his main concern in this letter and in the second Thessalonians letter is to prepare the believers for the coming of the Lord. So his concern is the return of Christ, or as he calls it, the day of the Lord, and he prepares us for that event. So let me read 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober." having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So this event, the return of Christ, or the day of the Lord, will be experienced very differently by two groups of people. And that's why when you, when you see these passages in Scripture, uh, sometimes it's presented as an awful day, and there's fear, there's dread, there's a warning to repent. And at other times, it's presented as a joyous event, as, as, as a day of salvation for, for God's people. So depending which group you are in, and I'm hoping that I can help you move to the right group if you're not in the right group now. But depending on which group you're in, that day will be very different for you. For the believer, who already belongs to the day, who is the child of light, it will be the day of salvation. For the unbeliever, who is in darkness now, it will be the day of judgment. And even though no one knows exactly when the Lord will return, and let me emphasize that, no one knows exactly when the Lord will return. So put away your, your chronology, put away your charts, okay? If you're trying to figure it out, the Lord told us no one knows, okay? So we are expecting Him to come whenever it is His will, whenever it is His time. And we don't know exactly when He'll return, but we are exhorted to prepare for Him as we wait. And the apostle uses a military metaphor here. We are to put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's in verse 8. The images of a soldier who's ready for the coming of his king. We are to prepare for the return of Christ by exercising faith, hope, and love. So this morning, I'm going to focus on hope, but we can certainly apply this passage in other ways too. What does the metaphor of hope as a helmet teach us about waiting for Christ's return? Let me highlight briefly five qualities of a Christian waiting in hope for the day of the Lord. So that's our outline. Five qualities of the waiting, hopeful Christian. We are aware, we are awake, we are alert, we are armored, and we are assured of salvation. Aware, awake, alert, armored, and assured of salvation. Now, first one is awareness. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What he means is that this is not a surprise that the Lord is coming for the Christian. The Christians are fully aware that he is coming and that it will be a surprise. He says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, unlike the believer who is fully aware, the unbeliever lives in ignorance of the coming day of the Lord. And certainly, many people think there is no judgment. It's all peace and security. Things will get better. There will be no accountability, and if we can escape accountability here, if we can escape judgment and punishment here, then we're fine. 
but judgment will come. It will come suddenly, and they will not be able to escape it. How, how much do you think about that? How much do you think about the coming judgment, which is a major biblical doctrine? How much do you think of that as, as a consolation, as part of your hope, that no evil will, will be left unpunished? That the Lord will somehow make everything right. And yes, we can wait. We can be patient. We can endure. This is a major theme in Scripture. And yet, I feel that it's often neglected in the Christian church. And certainly is neglected in the outside world. But believers should be fully aware that the Lord is coming. We have an informed hope. It's an informed hope for the future. As we anticipate his return, we are not wondering what might happen to us. If you are a Christian, you need to be fully informed to know what will happen when he returns. We have hope, meaning that we have confidence in Christ's victory over death. If you know that Jesus has already overcome death, then you are simply waiting for the final victory, for the final uh, conquest of everything that belongs to death. Paul says in Colossians 3, we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. That's already happened. We have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Are you aware that that's what's waiting for you? That when he returns, we will appear with him in glory. There should be no doubt, there should be no question that when he returns, you will be glorified. And the helmet, the helmet of hope becomes that, that evidence that we are waiting in awareness, that we are informed. The helmet is part of the soldier's gear. It's part of his uniform. And wearing that helmet marks him as belonging to his nation's military. Wearing that helmet moves him from being a civilian to being on active duty, being of active, part of active service. By putting the hope of salvation on as a helmet, we acknowledge our place in this conflict. We're saying we have taken a side. We are now part of this conflict between God and his enemies. We express that we know which side we belong to. And we know how this conflict will end. We become intentional participants in God's redemptive story, confidently anticipating the climactic resolution at Christ's return. The imagery is of a helmet, right? You put a helmet on, you become a soldier. You're saying, I am here I'm on this side of the conflict. I am participating, and I know what will happen when this is all over. So to live in hope is to live in conscious awareness and anticipation of the day of the Lord. While we don't know when or how exactly Jesus will return, we must know what will happen when he does. And our hope is based on God's specific promises Promises of salvation, promises of vindication, promises of restoration, promises of glorification, 
at the return of Christ. How well are you aware of these promises? How much are you informed of what God will do when Jesus returns? How much do you think about their fulfillment, imagining it and allowing that hope to influence you even now, to help you be patient, to help you endure, to help you persevere, to help you extend grace to others? How much do you long for your salvation to be complete? That's the first quality. As you put on the helmet of salvation, you become aware of what is to come. And then, of course, wearing the helmet shows that we are not asleep. Soldiers take their helmets off when they go to sleep, but when they put their helmets on, they are awake. Look at verses 4 through 7. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. So not only are we aware of God's war on sin and our place in it, not only have we been recruited to be in his army, but we are also on duty. We're not resting until he comes. We're not napping until he comes. In certain parts of the Christian church, there's this idea of sort of this passive waiting. Yeah, the Lord will come and take us out. And until then, we're just kind of hanging around, kind of waiting for him to do it. But that is not the biblical picture. In fact, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chastises the church. He rebukes the church for that sort of passive waiting. People have given up their jobs. They're just kind of sitting around waiting for Jesus to return. And Paul says, you can't do that. You keep working. You keep being awake. You don't go to sleep. We expect, actively expect, his final victory. And the contrast here, of course, is between the children of light or children of the day and those who belong to the night, those who belong in darkness. Now, since the Spirit has transferred us from the darkness of sin into the light of Christ, we are to live in that light. It's not just a forensic transfer. It's not just a change of legal status. It's also a change of your nature. It's a change of your life. We are to walk as children of light. We are to wait on the Lord fully awake and fighting sin. Now look at Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 14. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. As we anticipate the Lord's return, are we waiting up for him or have we gone to bed? Have you given into sin and become complacent in your walk with Christ? 
Or are you, as a child of light, walk in the light? That's two, being awake. Three is being alert. Putting a helmet of hope on shows that we are awake and it demands that we stay alert as we wait for the day of the Lord. Verses 6, 7, and 8. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now the key word here is sober. He's not talking simply about not drinking too much. That's a great application, but that's not the core of this teaching. The core of this teaching is spiritual sobriety, being self-controlled, being clear-headed, not being intoxicated by the world. A soldier on duty cannot be distracted. He cannot get lost in his thoughts and daydreams and lose focus. And worst of all, he, he can't be drunk. That's the picture. The Christian who is living in hope is anticipating the return of Christ, fully alert, paying attention, staying focused on what the Lord is doing right now and what the Lord has promised for us. Now, if you, if you like watching war movies or war TV shows, if you've seen enough of them, you know there's this trope that is almost in every one of those shows. And the trope is, is showing kind of the after, the post-victory uh, relaxation. So the victory has been won, it's been announced, and now it's celebrated. Now there's still stuff happening, but soldiers naturally become careless and lose focus. And so there's usually one of your favorite characters who gets accidentally shot or gets into a car accident. And, it, and it's a very sad scene because you feel like, well, the war is over. He survived this fighting. He survived the battles. The enemy hasn't killed him. And now somehow, seemingly randomly, carelessly, on accident, he is killed. Now, this is the, the image that Paul gives us, that even as we wait for this final victory, even as we know that the war is over, we are not to lose our focus. We're not to get careless. We are to stay alert and not let our guard down. So how can we live spiritually sober lives? I think there are two main strategies. Here's your application. Two main strategies. Negatively, we are to fight against distractions. Now, it is not hard to be distracted, is it? There's so many things, good things and bad things. There's sin, certainly. There are neutral things. And there are good things that can replace your devotion to God, that can become such a high priority that they displace God. Now, all this is in all, all our lives. And, and part of the Christian walk, part of being sober, is, is fighting those distractions, keeping good things in their own places, and fighting bad things, fighting against sin. And I think the main discipline here is fasting. I think the main discipline, negative discipline of living a sober life is fasting. It's deliberately limiting yourself for a time and checking your heart. Am I too connected to this good thing? Am I too reliant on this good thing? 
could be food, could be drink, could be sleep, could be sex, could be whatever. But you are, you're checking yourself against it. And you're saying, am I replacing God with His gift? Am I paying too much attention to something? And thus I'm, I'm, I'm taking attention off of God that He deserves? That's the negative discipline is fasting. And I, I commend it to you. And I know it's unpopular. And I know it's not common. But it is essential for the Christian who wants to live a sober life. And the positive discipline here is to fix our hearts on Jesus. That's the strategy. And the discipline is worship. The positive discipline is worship. Personal or corporate. Put the helmet of hope on and place yourself where you will be intentionally reminded of who Jesus is, of what he's done, what he will do in the future. Now, that can happen personally. When you open your Bible and you, you learn about Jesus, when you pray and you praise him and you meditate on who he is, and it can happen corporately, like on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Bible study, whatever. When you gather with other believers and your goal is to see Jesus as he is, place yourself in that path. Put yourself in those situations where you will be reminded you, where you know, even if you get distracted, you will be reminded by other people to focus on Jesus. That's how you live a sober Christian life as you wait for the Lord to return. Now, the next one is armored. The fourth one is armored. Now, I'm not saying armed. I'm saying armored because I think there's a difference in taking up arms and fighting in, a, in an aggressive way and, and, and receiving armor to protect you. I think there's a difference. In verse 8, we are told that, that we are to put on the breastplate of faith and love, a defensive piece to defend, to protect you, and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Again, a defensive piece. Notice that both of these things are meant to protect you, meant to protect your body as you are being attacked, as the enemy assaults you. They are meant to protect the person in the midst of the battle, not necessarily to help the person win the battle. The idea here is to be protected while we wait for the Lord to finish the fighting. We are to be protected while we wait for the Lord to return. Now here's your Ukraine-Russia war update. One of the issues today is that the the London mayor is refusing to give uh, the, the trucks, the vehicles that they're no longer saying you can't use them in the city of London, the old vehicles. He's refusing to, to give them to Ukraine. And Ukraine is saying we need these pickup trucks. It's mostly pickup trucks is what they want. And the reason they want those trucks is because they become really helpful, not so much in the, in the attack against Russia. You need tanks for that. But it's, it's in the defense, it's in the kind of behind the scenes, it's transportation, it's, it's you know, they're mounting anti-tank uh, guns on, on the back of those, those trucks. So they're defensive weapons, and what they do is they, they put a little bit of armor on it to protect the person inside. They're not, they're not expecting that you can drive that truck into the enemy lines, no. They're just expecting to, to protect the driver, to protect the soldiers inside as much as possible. In fact, the reason Ukraine prefers uh, these vehicles from the UK is because of the right-hand side driver's seat. 
because that tricks the Russian snipers. You see? This is, this is the idea of being armored, being protected. Now, you're doing other stuff. You're not necessarily even actively engaging in the battle. You're doing other stuff, but you are protected as you are doing that. The Lord protects you until Jesus returns. Now, I'm going to take you to the Apostle of Jude, which is a little book in the Bible, but is, is full of spiritual insight. And I love the way Jude addresses his readers. This is how he begins his letter. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice, he says, kept for Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is not only to be loved by God and called by God into his family and into his kingdom, but it is also to be kept by him until Jesus returns in glory. The promise here is preservation. God is promising to keep you, to protect you, to preserve you until Jesus returns. Now look at verses 20 through 21. Now this is all within the same letter, within the same chapter. Jude says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The same situation, right? As you're waiting for the final victory, you're waiting for the day of the Lord, keep yourself in the love of God. He begins by saying you are called, loved, and kept by God. Passive, right? Passive tense. And now he says you must keep yourself as you wait for the Lord's return. So how do you reconcile these, these two ideas? Kept by God and also keeping yourself in the love of God. Well, let me put it this way. We are to actively trust God's protection until the end. The connection is that we are called to actively trust His protection. Or as Paul puts it in our passage, we are to put on the armor of God. The armor is God's armor. It's his breastplate. It's his helmet. Faith, hope, and love are his gifts to us. And now as we put it on, we are actively trusting that his armor, his protection, his promises will hold. This is the Christian life, isn't it? We are trusting Him. He does the work, but we are trusting Him. He promises, but we are believing those promises. He says to wait, and we are actively waiting, awake, alert, trusting His armor, knowing that He will keep us, even as we ourselves place ourselves in that position of active trust. Now, I don't know if I can explain it any better, honestly. I think it's an experience. I think mostly it, it has to do with how we do it, how we process it. But it is His work. It is His gifts. It is His grace. It is His armor. And yet we put it on and we actively trust His protection. And all those who trust Him will persevere till the end. So how can you withstand the attacks of the enemy? How can you resist temptation? 
Now, the answer in our text is to cultivate the main Christian virtues of hope, faith, and love. Put that armor on and trust it to work. You trust it to protect you. We Christians complicate things, don't we? We say, okay, well, for me to resist this particular temptation, I need a convoluted strategy. I need a five-step plan. I need to put all these different pieces in place. Actually, what you need is just to be a Christian. Actually, just be a faithful, loving, hopeful Christian. We say, well, for me to be a good husband, I need to go to a seminar. I need to learn. I need to figure out how to communicate just in the right way so I keep my wife happy. That's not what you need. To be a good husband, you just need to be a good Christian. You just need to exhibit faith, hope, and love. And believe me, your spouse will be very happy with that. What does it mean to be a good parent? Well, let's develop some parenting techniques, right? Let's write some books. Let's give them grand names like parenting God's way and doing it according to the Lord's design. And let's make all these grand statements, right? But what does it boil down to? Be a good child to your heavenly father and you will be a good parent to your earthly children. A lot of Christian life is simple. It's about these virtues. It's about these gifts of God. It's about love. It's about faith. It's about hope. And as you grow in those things, which happens because the Holy Spirit has been given to you and He is changing you, and as you grow in these things, you will learn that a lot of other things just kind of are falling into place. As you focus on the main things, you will find that the secondary things, one, they won't matter as much, and two, there will not just be much of a challenge. But if you miss the center, and by the way, tonight... We're going to be talking about the center. We're going to be talking about Jesus himself and how he himself is our hope of glory. It's he, it's the person. As you focus on the center, as you focus on the gospel, as you go back over and over again to the simple truths that God has revealed to us, you will find that other things will fall into place. So put the armor on and simply trust it to work. And finally, the fifth quality of the waiting, hopeful Christian is that we wait assured of salvation. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. God has not destined us for wrath. By God's design, what you are waiting for is salvation. You, are, you should not be in doubt that if you are in Christ, you will be saved. You will be spared his judgment. No judgment will touch you because God's wrath has been satisfied. If you're a believer, I, and, and I try to say it often, and, and we need to hear it often, and I need to hear it as I say it, God is not angry with you if you are in Christ. God is not trying to punish you. 
God is not looking at the minutia of your life, trying to find that one little thing for which he can spank you. This is not your God. You are not destined for wrath. When judgment comes for you as the believer in Jesus, it will not be judgment, but it will be vindication. It will be full salvation. It will be full restoration. When all the promises that you are longing for all those promises to come true now, they will come true when Jesus returns. And it will be an absolutely joyful day for you. You are not destined for wrath. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul tells us that we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus who died for us. Who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning that whether we are alive physically when he returns or we have died physically when he returns, that's what he means, we might live with him. His death guarantees our life. When Jesus died, when he went to the cross, he took his armor off. He took his helmet off and exposed his head to the the crown of thorns. He took his breastplate off and exposed his side to be pierced. He took all the protective gear off and became completely vulnerable for you. Why? So he could absorb that wrath. So he could absorb the loss, the defeat of sin, so that when he rose again, he can give you the full victory. That's why our armor is only defensive, because he has already won the battle. The war has been won. We are simply waiting for that final declaration, that ultimate parade, that final enthronement of Christ over all of creation. And when he comes... We will take our helmets off too. And we will place them at his feet. We will throw in our crowns at his feet. And we will worship him. Now the question is, my last question for you is, which side are you on? Are you wearing the helmet of hope now? Knowing what's going to happen. Being awake working for him, being alert, not losing focus, armored, protected by his love, by his faith, by his hope, assured that when he returns, this will be a day of salvation for you. Are all those things true of you? Are any of those things true of you? Do any of those things resonate with your heart and you're saying, yeah, that's me? Or are they, they just seem strange and unrelated to you? If those things are not true, if they don't grab your imagination, if they don't speak to your heart, if they don't sound real to you today, that means you're on the other side. And you have no assurance. And you really have no hope. Whatever you think might happen is just your own thinking. It's not based on reality. So I want to ask you, if you are willing today to move from that place of ignorance, from that place of hopelessness, from that night, that night of drunkenness, that night of sleepiness, that place of being unprotected before Satan, no armor to resist him, no weapons against his temptations, being completely controlled and enslaved by sin, 
being apart from God. I want to ask you to move from that place to this other place of hope. This place where, where Christ is in the light. And as that light shines and exposes your sins, that actually doesn't bring you down, but it lifts you up because you know your sins are forgiven. Because you know that he died for you. Having become vulnerable, he experienced death in your place. And now that he's risen, now that he's ascended to be with the Father and he's promised to return again, we live in that hope. Would you transfer from that place of hopelessness to this place of hope? And you do that by simply trusting him. There's nothing actually you do in that process. You're simply saying, yes, yes, Jesus, you did it. I want to be with you. I want to be part of your kingdom, part of your family, and I will receive that gift. A gift is not a gift if you pay for it. That's, that just becomes purchase. A gift is not a gift if you deserve it. That's just payment, right? That's your wages. A gift is only a gift when you receive it. And that is that offer of hope of salvation from Christ. It's a gift. So all you do is you just receive it. Say, I will take it. And you take it by faith. And I hope that today is that day for you. Whether you're here in the sanctuary or you're watching online, I hope that today is that day when you realize the hope that you can have in Christ and you take hold of it. And if you are a believer, I pray that this hope you already have in Christ will become more of a concept, more of a reality, more of a, an arresting image in your life, that it will actually transform how you live. That if you've been asleep, you will wake up. If you've been distracted, you will be alert. If you've been in ignorance, you will learn more. If you've been worried about what's going to happen, that you will become assured. You will put on the armor and be protected by God himself.